Hello, I'm Jeremy Allaire, and this is The Money Movement. We're recording here in Miami at Bitcoin 2022. A lot of amazing things going on. I'm very lucky to have a colleague and a third or fourth or fifth time guest on The Money Movement who's a bit of a co-host as well, uh, Dante Desparte, Circle's Chief Strategy Officer. Welcome again. Thanks again, Jeremy. Good to be back. <laughs> <laughs> now, we get to have conversations like this like all day, every day, or, or a lot, I should say. But I think there are some big themes that are important in terms of just how to think about this financial system that we're building and, and what it can be and breaking some things down and understanding them. And, and so I think the goal today was really let you drive some of the conversation yeah. here and try and some, shed some light on what is this new digital currency-based financial system that we're building and why is it different? Why is it better? How does it look? Yeah. Well, I, I think linearly, you're right that you and I get to have deep strategy conversations all the time. But I think to put ourselves on the stand and in front of the light of day and the hopefully the light of the internet, there's some building blocks that are pretty fundamental. In my view, if you start with what does not work in the brick and mortar banking system, and then as one sort of pillar of, of conversation, the other piece of the puzzle is what does not work in the brick and mortar banking system when it takes bank holidays? And yet you then think about your and my needs are always on in terms of financial requirements. The ability to transmit value, of course, has a series of important pillars around it, around trust, around composability, programmability, and all of these concepts. And so in a world in which an internet of value starts to emerge, and then you could start to plug into new ways of intermediating money, then one of the core building blocks is the stablecoin, right? And call it a dollar digital currency. In our world, of course, it's USDC. The second you start to have an opportunity for a, a digitally native instrument that is a medium of exchange, a unit of measure, and a store of value, then all of a sudden payments is the bottom rung of that ladder of economic mobility, right? So assume we're solving for the payments problem first. But in most cases, that's only the end of the beginning, to quote Winston Churchill. So I want to ask you sort of the question, because you're deep down the rabbit hole of what happens next? What happens when you unlock programmable, composable, and exquisite internet-native money, where the buyer and the user of these innovations are not subjected to hyper-volatility or buyer's remorse? Frankly, many of the original sins of the cryptocurrency industry. So what happens next, if I could ask you that question? Because if you think of all of these early internet finance, DeFi, CeFi, all of these use cases in some respects are just round one. Where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, I, I would start just, I think, with some like foundational concepts, right? Which I think a lot of times when people hear about a stable coin or digital currency like this, the first inclination is to think about payments, as you said, right? And is this a, a better, faster, cheaper way to make payments? Haven't we solved that problem kind of mentality a lot of times that, that comes mm -hmm. in? And I mean, even today, uh, Secretary of Treasury Yellen gave a speech and talked about the limitations in our payment systems. We've got to improve it. It's got to be faster, cheaper, better, more inclusive, all important stuff, right? But I think what motivates the crypto economic narrative which is how do we build a significantly, really a new financial system? How do we actually build a new financial system? It kind of comes back to like underlying first principles of 
basics, like what is money? When we think about what money is, what makes something like USDC as a form of a dollar, expression of a dollar, different than what we might think of as you know, a paper check that we wrote our name on or the balance that I see when I open my, say, Bank of America app? And what is that existing financial system trying to accomplish? And then how is this new financial system really different? And so the kind of first principles, I think, that have informed a lot of innovation in the digital currency space, including Bitcoin itself, is a kind of underlying belief in a more sound money philosophy. Mm-hmm. And don't want to go too far off the, the reservation here, but Bitcoin itself is an expression of, for many people, it's an expression of a form of sound money. It's a, people would argue that gold is a, a, a form of sound money. It's non-government. It, it can't be counterfeited. It can't be debased. It's fixed supply. It's, you know, all these things, right? So you have that kind of thing. But then you have sound money in fiat currency, and that's been a, a topic of, of discussion for a really long time, dating back especially to the bank crises that happened. You had the mutualization of risk that created the Federal Reserve. That was one you know, big, mm-hmm. big example. And then you had the mutualization of risk that became FDIC insurance. And if we think about modern banking, and that's, the, that's sort of the foundation of what we think of as dollars today, is I've got this dollar but what I really have is I've got a liability. I have an IOU from an institution. In the United States, we call these institutions banks. And what they're doing is they're taking that dollar and their job is to, or their, their business model is to actually you know, lend it out. And because not everyone needs their money all at the same time. Like, you know, I might need to make a payment for my hotel tomorrow, but I actually have money sitting there. And so they're lending out. And the kind of sound money view, which you know, b- back in, in the 1930s when the Great Depression happened and the banking system collapsed, there was a big debate, which was, is there a, a way to have a safer financial system? How do we deal with this, these bank runs? How do we deal with these crises? How do we deal with the inherent risk of what's now understood to be fractional reserve banking. And there were two proposals. One proposal was what was called the Chicago Plan. And a collection of economists, Irving Fisher, most noteworthy from the Chicago School, proposed a separation of the activity of the payment use of money from the lending use of money. And, And sort of argued that what would be safer would be if the dollars that were dollars that were issued by the the federal government so they're still it's still sort of federal government money it was based on an exchange rate to gold at the time but that banks couldn't lend them out on a fractional reserve basis that instead the money was on a full reserve basis and there's the payment utility attached to that and that lending had to be a separate activity and that was, that was one proposal, how to deal with the inherent risk of the financial system. The other proposal, which was advocated by the bank lobby, was to keep the system, but instead just come up with an insurance model. Mm-hmm. There's going to be risk. People are going to sometimes make bad decisions. And when they do, we're going to mutualize that. And we're going to have this big pool of insurance. And then we're going to have special supervision 
of the businesses that do this to make sure they, they're just not doing anything really fucking crazy. Um, <laughs> and so that's what has gone on. And so that is the business of, that is what we think of as dollars today. Our dollars, as I like to say, you know, you have a, an IOU with Chase, you have an IOU with Bank of America. It's actually not a dollar. It's actually just, you know, you have a liability against their loan book. Yeah. And there's a long-winded way of sort of coming, coming back to this is a full reserve money I think becomes possible in the world of digital currency. And you know, what, what we see with stable coins today is an expression of a full reserve, I think the foundation of a more sound money, full reserve banking system where the dollars that we can utilize with the superpowers of the internet, these cryptographic uh, currency dollars that exist like a USDC digital currency dollar, they have this incredible utility value. They have the power of the internet, the speed, efficiency, and so on. But what's the most important innovation, in my view, and, and is very foundational to this, is that these are based on this full reserve model. And there's not that inherent risk-taking. And so that's like one, I think, kind of really important kind of foundational notion that, that's here, which begs a lot of questions. Well, it does. And I, and I had a couple based on that history lesson of sound money. And how do we get to where we are now? One point, which is a reminder of where this whole industry was born from, right? Um, Bitcoin and the idea that there should be an internet of value and peer-to-peer -peer payment systems on the internet, in some respects, was a protest vote to 2008. Yes. So you started this narrative at the Great uh, Depression and the need for a run-risk model on banking because banks were fundamentally opaque they were taking your money, pretending to put it in the bank, but effectively leveraging it up and putting out credit into right. the economy, which, leveraged happened we, which happened again. And then you fast forward to 2008, and you have nothing short of a great recession and a great deleveraging, which privatized gain and socialized losses to the tune of trillions. And so in some respect, the digital assets industry and the crypto industry was a protest vote to that operating yeah. model. And it's in the ethos, uh, right? It is. It really is deeply in the ethos and clearly very very much animating all of the fun, the conversation, frankly, the breakthrough innovations taking place here in Miami. But if you could flip it on its head and democratize access to value and gain and not socialize losses and privatize losses, that's part of the principle underpinning sound money. It's also part of the principle that has driven a lot of the global critiques, frankly, of stable coins, because so much of the early 13-year maiden voyage of the crypto assets industry has been plagued by internet funny money, vaporware, stable coins masquerading as sound. And I think there has been a very legitimate regulatory and global public policy conversation. You particularly, and I have had to share those hot seats, have had to be at the center of defending the operating model, but assuming the defense is given yeah. and assuming the innovation of trusted forms of digital currency exists on the internet, what's next? Because yeah. there's other examples yeah. of, of the global economy. Yeah. There ha there's all these stranded assets and stranded opportunities. Right to bank the unbanked, to provide lower cost forms of payment, we could agree is the bottom rung yeah. of the ladder of economic mobility. Yeah. But then you and I may be beneficiaries by the postal code we were born in of time value of money exactly. and, and leverage and interest rates working in our favor mm -hmm. and all these traditional banking and financial services that under the guise of consumer protection, many, many people are locked out of. Things like DeFi, things like programmable money, things like yield farming and and yield markets start to flip the time value of money concept on its head, creating this notion of a 
money value of time or time value of money working in your favor, but it's entirely programmable. It's always on. It's yeah. native to the internet. Totally. So there's a lot in there, right? <laughs> and I think, you know, kind of t- taking the, these foundation of you have a kind of full reserve money, the, the biggest critique that economists will make of that is, well, lending is important, right? Lending is what creates economic activity. If it wasn't for the fact that the the small business took out a loan to open up their restaurant and hire the workers, you wouldn't create that those new jobs. And so the provisioning of credit, which is essentially the ability for someone to access money that they don't have, the time value of money in some ways is, is exactly that. I'm a household or I'm a firm and I'd like to be able to do something. I don't actually have enough money to do it, but I want someone to actually give me money right now to do it. There are ways we can do that where we put an asset up, which is what a mortgage is, right? I have this house and I'm willing to give you my house, Mr. Bank, Mrs. Bank, take my house and you'll give me a loan that if I can't repay it, then the bank takes the house, right? So that's like one way. But a lot of, a lot of the creation, which I think, central banks care a lot about, and this is the criticism of this kind of concept, is you need to be able to stimulate economic activity. You need to be able to have that take place. And and if you don't have the risk-taking on a fractional reserve system, then you won't be able to do that. And so to me, I think this gets into like some some core, uh, core things about the innovation of digital currency, which is digital currency, dollar digital currency, stable coins, like USDC, are on a path to become as efficient to utilize as data on the internet. And so what does that mean? Well, that just means that it doesn't cost me anything to, to move a piece of data on the internet. It happens at the speed of light, as you know, basically. And then people can use software to integrate that and do amazing things. So now we'll have that with money, right? We'll have money that moves at the speed of light, money that moves at the cost of moving data on the internet, and, and it will be programmable. And so that's really, really powerful. So just at a base layer, that's extraordinary, and that's, we're, we're on that path. We're, we're very much on that path. And then the question becomes, okay, well, how do you utilize that? It's not just about making payments more efficient. It's, it's about how does capital, how does money get used in the real economy? And if you're holding, if the underlying dollars are, are fully reserved, well, then how does that happen? Well, people lend the stable coins. So what we've seen happen, and this is the, the break, breakthrough of blockchains, it's a breakthrough of DeFi, is people are, in, are, are basically you know, borrowing and lending of these digital currencies. And when someone borrows you know, 100,000 USDC, there's no like lending it five times over. Like, you know, there's 100,000 USDC. Those are fixed units. Those are tokens that exist. They're fixed tokens. Those 100,000 USDC can be lent to someone. You can't lend it out five times or eight times or 10 times, which is sort of the, the leverage that you have. And so people are doing this lending and you're seeing that emerge. And I think one of the really critical things is, can, is there a way to, um, utilize that money and have it be lent and utilized multiple times between multiple parties and do that in a way which is really, really well risk managed. And so when I think about the creation of a new financial system, 
where there is lending, where there is the ability for people to get credit, but where there's less risk, this is like the problem space that, that people are now you know, thinking about, how to utilize this fixed reserve of, of money and, and enable that. And I think my theory is that rather than, you know, kind of banks being in the business of creating money, which is, you know, what they do, that there may be ways, just given the efficiency of how you can lock and move and program mm. money, that actually you could have more velocity of money in the economy. The, the money itself could, could be utilized even more efficiently and more broadly, mm-hmm. but actually still on a, on a foundation that's lower risk. And so to me, the, the, you know, the, the, one of the big concepts is you know, when the utility of, when the use of money, meaning how it's transmitted and what we think of payments, the use of money, when that becomes instant and frictionless and zero cost, then that will actually expand the use cases of money itself, you know, maybe a hundred thousand X or a million X compared to what we have yeah. today. Well, so so uh, there there are a couple, there's so much to unpack in that, and there there are a couple of interesting conundrums and thoughts that I've always grappled with and have always had to explain, including to central banks. Right, a, a couple of let me just air a few of them and, and yeah. get your reaction to this. One of them is this notion that if money is in fact a public good, and banking has an implied public backstop, therefore it is also a public good, then why do I have to ask someone for permission to send it and pay someone for permission to hold it for me? Mm-hmm. And then why are there all of these insidious fees and yeah. you know, non-sufficient funds fees, if, any, if yeah. anybody who's listening remembers what that experience looks like oh. when you bounce a check? I know. <laughs> no, I, I've got, you know, I've got you know young adult sons, and I exactly. get email notifications of the overdraft. Absolutely, fees. the overdraft fees, and so to the extent there is this model of basic banking, that young adult son would also understand the idea that that you have to have a minimum balance at all times, otherwise they charge you a fee for the privilege of getting a public good. That's a conundrum. The other interesting conundrum, and this one I picked up at a conference I was with. I was speaking with the Bank for International Settlements that if you went to a regulator or a policymaker today with an innovation called physical cash, by today's regulatory standards, it would not be approved. Three reasons why. One, its opacity. Two, its limitation. It'll extend as far as my arm could reach. And then three, in, in a global pandemic, it's a vector for spreading disease. The last quick irony is the operating model of should these innovations be plugged into the traditional banking system as competition to them, or are these innovations completing unfinished work, right? And that as, a, as an end user, as a market participant in the digital assets economy, you're participating in not a substitution of traditional banking and credit intermediation, but an alternative, and that that is the point, yeah. that we're, we're completing unfinished yeah. work. Yeah, and I think there's a lot, a lot of things there. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of different ways to think about what's being built. My view, and, and I think you see this in the dynamism of the, and the creativity of what people are doing with, with DeFi, with programmable money, with open software on blockchains, is this in- incredible innovation in the kinds of things that people could do with this. And I think the, the first instinct is, you know, it's got to look like, smell like, act like, and be regulated like you know, a bank utility, like banks are kind of these public utility functions, right? And that, that's what needs to happen. I think another view is actually what's going to, what may emerge here, and I think what will emerge here is products, financial products and services 
that are sort of proverbially 10x or 100x better and, and that people haven't even thought of. Mm. And, I, and I think the internet teaches us a lot of lessons about this, right? You know, we had cable companies and that was an innovation that happened. Uh, there were terrestrial broadcast companies and then there were cable companies and then the internet came along and all of a sudden you could have infinite video publishing and you had infinite, the celestial jukebox of video of everything and just the massive explosion. And, and so you had just software apps that basically became complete substitutes for those closed architectures that were these heavily regulated communications firms. The same thing with communications, right? We, we all use, whether it be WhatsApp or Telegram or iMessage or pick whatever communications app, that's not AT&T or Verizon or British Telecom or NTT. That's just software that we just download and use and it gives us free communications. And so the utility of communications radically improved mm. and it happened through this software. And so the same thing, the utility of money is going to radically improve. There's going to be huge new types of application services, utilities, and it's not going to, it's going to be way better than what we, what we have seen from banking. It will be something where more user controlled, greater privacy and security, significantly, you know, more efficient, inherently more global. And there's going to be these kinds of innovations. It's not to say that there, you still need a, a regulatory framework around it. And you still probably need that because this is becoming such a big deal at a national and international level. Yeah. But if you just say, here's the rules that apply for what we think of historically banking, I think that doesn't work. And so, you know, it's, it, it really requires a lot of imagination for, you know, a, you know a, a fresh start. What are the fundamental risks and how do we think about those? How can technology itself address those risks? How can innovators, you know, innovate and, and solve for those problems? It, you know, we didn't need uh, local taxi commissions to come up with a way to regulate how people use ride-sharing, right? Ride-sharing created risk management mm -hmm. using innovations in software and data. Uh, and so this, I think the same thing in terms of like, say, credit intermediation that happens through DeFi and, and so on, like that's just going to move at a pace and velocity and innovation that is, you know, faster. It already is. I mean, it's just moving way. There's no regulator in the world that can keep up with that, the, the pace of innovation that's happening with programmable money on the internet. There's no regulator that can keep up with that. And at some level, like that scares the shit out of, out of regulators. It's just like, whoa. And, and now, you know, the Bank of International Settlements is having a conference on, you know, CBDC, stablecoins, and DeFi. And, and frankly, what that really just means is they're just like grappling, like, what do we do about this? Like, yeah. you know, uh, but it's happening so fast. And I think um, the mindset in terms of how to think about risk is different. And, and it, it gets to core issues. You know, we face this in the land, in stablecoin land, as it were, right? People are concerned. If this is going to be a dollar on the internet, how do we know it's a dollar? What a kind of dollar is it? What is the risk? What are the reserves? How do we audit that? How do we know what this is? It's an invention of a new banking, and, uh, banking model. It's an invention of a new banking and payment system model. And I think appropriate people are focused on, on the right risks. And so you do get to these core issues. Yeah. Well, and in there, there, there is a lot. You, you, I wanted to touch on the ride-sharing example just for a second, because when, when category-creating companies in the urban mobility space, Uber, Lyft, and so on, came up, the taxi cab companies, which had proverbial, if not veritable, monopolies on their trade... And the hotel um, commissions with Airbnb? Absolutely. Right. Everybody freaked out. But the ride-share companies were going places taxis dared not travel. 
and picking up people who were perhaps of the wrong complexion to go places they, uh, the taxi companies perhaps dared not travel. There's also a similar paradigm taking place in this industry, which often gets a somewhat checkered scorecard on issues to financial inclusion. But I, I was recently talking to folks in uh, Senator Booker's office about the fact that, that the industry is over-indexed on minorities and folks who are historically underrepresented in it. And I think one of the very powerful examples why is the producer of Black Panther walks into a bank to take out his cash, ends up in handcuffs. <laughs> but yet, if there's a powerful example for why you should have a personhood, a trusted counterparty on the internet, yeah. being able to create credit from one another, irrespective of all other factors, your a credit score, money. it's a political money. And um, there's a willingness to pay, a willingness to settle, a willingness to trade. And so you talk about this idea, Jeremy, a lot of today you don't send a cross-border email. You just send an email to a trusted counterparty. What happens if finance becomes flat yeah. and you're not sending cross-border payments, you're not intermediating across uh, with a lot of intermediaries, but you're just trading with trusted and counter it counterparts? I mean, it, it, it has. This is no longer a what if. Like, it has. There's nearly 200 billion stable coins in, dollar stablecoins in circulation. There are trillions of dollars of transactions happening. There are literally thousands and thousands of companies around the world that are plugging into these protocols in almost every country in the world. And people are exchanging value directly and they can take self-custody of their digital currency. And that's extremely empowering. Mm. If I'm that, you know, if, if I'm that minority and, or I'm, a, I'm fleeing a country right now, which happened to be four or five million people fleeing a country right now, they can take control of their wealth using self-custody mm -hmm. of digital currency, and they can take that with them, and no one can take that from them. You know, I think that's incredibly empowering, and it does create new questions, new issues. Money is inherently borderless now. It just is. There's no turning that back. There's no turning that back. Bitcoin itself is intergalactic. Digital currencies that exist on public blockchains are inherently intergalactic. They, ex they just exist cryptographically, mathematically on these networks. There's no turning that back. And that's really, really powerful and really, really empowering. And policymakers are gonna have to adjust. There's no putting the genie back in the bottle. They have to adjust. Countries that have mismanaged their finances, who've become extremely in debt, whose currencies are being devalued, people can vote with their smartphone to be in a safer financial system. There's no turning that back. There are going to be people who fight that. There are going to be governments that fight that. There's going to be probably blood on the streets in some countries because people are going to say, no freaking way. Mm -hmm. I want self-sovereign money. I want control. I'm going to do this. Don't you dare try and stop me. And it's going to become that kind of issue in some places. But there is no turning back on that. And it poses a lot of challenges. It is th these themes of what will be the currencies of the internet? What are going to be the predominant currencies of the internet? Is it going to be dollar digital currencies? Is it going to be non-sovereign digital currencies like Bitcoin? Is it going to be synthetic digital currencies? It's going to probably be all of those, but it's just, we've entered this new era and it's here and people can deny it, but it is here. Yeah. Well, the, the reference point for me is if this is indeed the internet of value, we're in the dial-up phase. My, my view also in, you know, for the, the technology to really work, it has to fade to the background. And the experience 
if it is in fact this internet of value, the experience is still um, clunky, right? If we're being honest about gas fees and you know the power of DAOs organizing to buy the constitution, but then the adverse consumer experience of trying to get their funds back minus $1.5 million of gas fees. All of this is being abstracted away, right? I, I think you're, you're the biggest mind I know on what is happening at the, the protocol layer, what yeah. is happening with all of the other building blocks yes. for this era of programmable, exquisite, composable yes. money. Do we get to a point where the tech fades to the complete background and you're merely making a transaction with a trusted yeah. counterparty? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the you know, the interesting thing, these are in, in some ways like there's like the the kind of core technology issues like scalability or uh, privacy, you know, these like deeper technical issues that are constantly being solved and iterated on. And, and, and as as you know, third generation of blockchains make this, you know, dramatically faster, cheaper, better next generation, even like the third, I, I think of Ethereum, you know, two as it evolves as sort of a third generation blockchain architecture. So we're seeing that the, the background infrastructure really get upgraded so that we can solve that. But it's also the, what I think of, people think of as the user interface, but really the user experience problem. And as you've noted, right, these technologies gain mass adoption when you know, it kind of fades, you know, to, to the background. You know, it was, you know, when I could just download a messaging app and all I needed to know is someone's mobile, you know, mobile phone number and it just like plugged in and I could just work with that everywhere or, and that's all I needed to know. That became the basis for billions of people being able to do kind of mobile, mobile messaging, right? So the sort of digital identity and kind of verified digital identity on top of the, a simpler user interface on top of these, you know, blockchain networks and and so on. We're we're like right on the cusp of that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think you know I was in a conversation, uh, another episode of the Money Movement earlier today, and people talk about you know the the the, the iPhone needed to happen for mobile to truly take hold, right? It was just kludgy, clunky, mm -hmm. kludgy. We all bought smartphones. They were all awful, but we like <laughs> kind of like, this is a smartphone. I have it, you know, my BlackBerry or whatever the hell it was. And like, you know, eventually, right, someone got it right. They got the user interface. They got, they blended together enough things to just make it beautiful, make it seamless, make it work. And no one has yet solved that like the 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 consumer or the end user application because it's going to be a software application that brings this to life there's a lot of people experimenting with it you know building these new digital wallets but they're not just digital wallets they're they allow you to interact with new types of decentralized apps they're they're for content they're for identity like they're, you know, I think the good news, is, and we're investing in some of the startups that are building these next generation wallets, if we want to call them that. But the paradigm of user experience is, is sort of the next leap. And I think when I look at the building blocks, as you said, uh, looking closely at those, they're all here, right? So I think probably of, if there's 70,000 people here in town in Miami, I would assume that there's some of them who are building that right now. And we don't even know what that product is yet. That's right. Well, that ultimately... What is true, though, irrespective of what that, that evolution looks like, is throughout the idea that you should have a trusted medium of exchange that transcends all of them, where you have no buyer's and spender's remorse, is in, in some respects, if we are in a gold rush, sell tools, shovels, and pickaxes, don't dig for gold. And, you know, I'm I've of done the that view, for a living. I know you have, right? And <laughs> I'm of the view that in, in many respects, a trusted dollar digital currency 
is a utility that ought to yeah. live across that ecosystem. Absolutely. And, and, and then therefore, on top of it, you could build the other rungs of this ladder of economic mobility that we've spoken of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's sort of the, the found, foundational infrastructure that you know, is just needed and people does need to be kind of trusted. And I think for it to work for households and firms and capital markets like all around the world, it also has to have a, a level of some supervision and assurance around it while you're really trying to preserve as much as possible the inherent power of a, a digital currency that just floats freely on the internet. And that can be programmed and integrated in open software and open networks uh, as well. And, and that's, that's that balance that we're, we're constantly uh, kind of fighting for. Absolutely. Well, good stuff. A lot, of, uh, a lot of themes that we're exploring here. Excited to have this conversation. Likewise. This is my, what, third act on the money movement? It is. <laughs> Till Thank the next you. one. Thank you, Don. Thanks, Jeremy.